What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Today's episode Balancing Order and Disorder. Did you know there's more than one kind of bureaucracy? Don't turn this off yet. I promise it's anything but boring. When I was speaking to my guest this week, he introduced me to what sounds like the opposite of the process-laden, too many TPS reports, too many meetings kind of bureaucracy. Instead of being rooted in finding order, it's actually rooted in chaos. And that chaos is sometimes the key to building a super fast-growing startup company until it gets out of hand. Our guest has been there, and he has some advice on how to manage it. But before we get there, let me introduce him. He's a CEO and founder who has had a year, that's for sure. That's because he runs a company that's less than 10 years old and has cracked into an industry that's usually in the background of the global economy. But this year, it was in the headlines. A giant container ship ran aground in the Suez Canal after losing power. And at around 200,000 tons and over 400 metres long, the container, well, it's going to take some shifting. 50 ships a day normally pass through the canal, carrying 12% of the world's trade. So the pressure is really on to get her refloated. Ryan Peterson is the founder and CEO of Flexport, the global logistics company that helps other companies book and manage their global trade and track ships. It did $1.3 billion in revenue last year and ships about 200,000 cargo containers of goods annually. Of course, the pandemic shook the entire world of goods transport. And Ryan has some fascinating thoughts on when, or rather if, we might recover. Before he founded Flexport, and before he was running his unicorn company managing global shipments in a totally unprecedented time, Ryan was the son of an entrepreneur. And he seemed to get the founder bug early. My mother is an entrepreneur. She sold two companies, both in the biochemistry space and sort of food safety, helping companies deal with, uh, make their supply chain safer and more compliant. And I think in hindsight, she sort of raised my brother and I to be entrepreneurs. My first company was actually when I was in fifth grade. I had to earn my allowance by delivering sodas to her office. <laughs> I think this was her way to make my allowance tax free. And then my father is a computer programmer. So he taught me how to write software to generate invoices for her. And today I think he would just use Microsoft Excel for that, but I would generate an invoice and then send it to her. And that's how I kept my allowance. She started there early. Then when I was in middle school, she would take me to Costco. We would go and buy bulk 
blow pops and then I'd sell them to all the other kids at school. I was the low cost discounter. I would sell two blow pops for 25 cents when the going rate was one for 25 cents and I cleaned out. What was your profit margin on that? A hundred percent. It was a hundred percent profit margin. I bought them at six cents each and sold them at 12 and a half. Fantastic. <laughs> it's clean. <laughs> so what led you then as a young adult to business school after college? Did you already know that, that your path would be to be a founder? Uh, so I actually was a founder before business school of a very unsuccessful business. And I was buying motorcycles and other products in China, selling them online. We made some money, but like it wasn't, it wasn't really sustainable. It didn't seem like it really, like it was going to be a big lasting thing. But you were importing things. Yeah, we were buying stuff yeah. from China. And I lived in China for two years before business school. I was working, learning Chinese and learning how to do supply chain in China. But I wasn't making a lot of money. I think the year before I applied to business school, I made $17,000. I was trying to make money. It wasn't like <laughs> I, <didn't. laughs> I was trying hard and that's all I could do. And I think I probably had the lowest salary of anybody. It wasn't a salary, but the lowest income of anyone going into Columbia Business School, at least of people who was trying to make money. So I think I looked at business school almost like a social, like a safety net for me. Like, hey, I could tell a good story to get into this place. And then like worst case, if everything goes wrong in my life, like I could get a job. And I quickly realized once I got to business school that like the whole, all the jobs that other people were excited about, I thought looked like terrible, like I would be terrible at them and therefore, and they would be boring to me. Um, so I didn't end up pursuing like the normal business school track. Right. But you had started another business by the time you were ready to graduate business school. Is that right? Yeah. So during business school, I started a company called importgenius.com. What, what was that? So importgenius still, still is a great company. Actually, we sell data on imports and exports. So if you import something into, there's like 20 countries or so when you import a product or export in some countries, the shipping manifest is a public record. And so I built this business with my older brother and another partner to digitize all those shipping records and sell, we sell subscriptions to the data. Wow. And so your, does your brother still run it? Uh, we have a woman who was the head of customer service when I was the CEO, who's the general manager for the business. She runs it. Oh, cool. Interesting. Okay. So importing, exporting, managing the flow of data, this all had been become your strong suit. And then what was the kind of original genesis of Flexport? Where did the business come from? And the idea, like, I'm going to start a fast growth shipping logistics business. Was that the foundation or was it something else? Well, in hindsight, it all makes sense. It sort of like built my career at the intersection of the internet and global trade. And so first as a practitioner, like trying to buy stuff. And we were the first dealer in the United States for Geely, which is the Chinese car company that bought Volvo. Huh. We were importing not cars, but motorcycles. And we sell them on eBay Motors and other places. And motorcycles are one of the hardest things to import. You've got like the EPA cares a lot about right, uh, emissions, DOT, Department of Transportation, Customs and Border Protection. There's probably a whole bunch of other regulators I can't even remember, but a lot of paperwork. Compliance is really hard. And that's on top of just like regular shipping stuff is hard. And I felt like the whole industry uh, that's called freight forwarding that and customs brokerage, they just... It just didn't seem like, for one, there was no technology anywhere. It seemed like a really classic place to pr provide technology to simplify this and make it easy to understand how it all works. And then two, everybody seemed to be conspiring to take my money and not help me out that much. Um, George Bernard Shaw has this great quote. He says, uh, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. And I felt like the freight industry was just the poster child for that. Just like they kind of knew more what was going on than we did as small 
entrepreneurs and they took advantage of that to make money off of us. So that was the original genesis of the idea. We got started and pretty soon realized that like some of the biggest companies in the world had related problems. Like the dirty secret is that nobody knows where their stuff is. Even the best companies in the world have no idea and it just disappears until it magically shows up at the warehouse and gets scanned back into inventory like weeks or months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like most people don't even know what freight forwarding is. And it is so massive and such a massive problem. I feel like there's got to have been a mental hurdle there for you. Like, was there? And and did you know what you were getting into from the start? No, no, I didn't. I, I knew that I knew the problem from the customer's experience and a customer standpoint. And like, I kind of had a vision for what the customer experience should be. How to do it, I had to learn. And I'm still learning. You know, there were others who went through Y Combinator um, who had tried to solve this problem before. Um, that's the startup incubator that you went through in 2014, I believe. And I read that Paul Graham, the founder of YC, even had a weird term for how large that problem is. He definitely enjoys the fact that our market is so massive and has been pushed. Yeah, I'm sure he enjoys it now. <laughs> yeah. Did he have to like encourage you to to keep going or to, to really tackle the industry? No, I don't think so. I think Paul... Paul is Paul's an amazing human because he doesn't ask like why this company's not going to work. He just asks like how big could it be if it does work? He doesn't even literally I don't think the the thought of failure ever crosses his mind or he doesn't care. I showed him our problem and he realized pretty early on that like all the inefficiencies here that are breaking down the supply chain well we're the circulatory system for all the other companies if they sell physical goods. So if there's inefficiencies here it's back pressure on the whole rest of the economy and keeping growth back. And we literally see this right now. The world is sold out of ocean freight. It's June of 2021 as we're recording this and all the boats are full. Like you want to ship something somewhere, get in line and it'll be a couple of months before it can leave. If you can't ship anything, you can't sell it, you can't grow. And so I think Paul recognized that pretty early on that this was a vital industry. And if it's as inefficient as we showed him, then like this is a big problem to solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I want to get back to this moment in time soon, but but looking back to 2014-ish, um, there was this kind of bunch of companies emerging at the time that were sort of B2B for Silicon Valley itself, as so many startups were growing. There's, you know, companies making t-shirts for startups. There's like Stripe powering the purchasing online of stuff. And were you thinking at that time, like, I'm just going to help these D to C companies ship their stuff and get it efficiently, be another kind of tech backbone for global shipping and the movement of stuff to companies and consumers? Like, was that part of the framework at the time? Yeah. The original idea was really to help small businesses, mom and pops, but really it was more about startups and, and mm -hmm. companies that are trying to create something new. A lot of it's like Amazon marketplace sellers and eBay sellers. We weren't really so much focused on like venture back startups at least in the idea stage. Once we got going though, we quickly realized like that's where we were getting traction. That's where we were finding good customers that were growing really, really fast. These are businesses that are kind of digitally native and they're used to running software and having data on everything that they do. And then all of a sudden their freight companies were like, hey, you need a fax machine. And so it was very easy to convince them that like, yeah, you should have software to manage this part of your business. That was our early backing. It's still probably like 20% of our business is these direct-to-consumer. We have almost all of them. We ship pretty much every direct to consumer product, but it's only and and that's our fastest growing part of our business because those those companies are just kind of winning. But we ship for a lot these days. We've really migrated upstream. We ship for a lot of Fortune 500s and kind of like more traditional 
businesses as well. Yeah, I was going to ask how that's shifted. So who's your customer now? Who are most of your customers? And how big is Flexport these days? Uh, well, we ship for like thousands and thousands of companies, including probably like 50 of them that are in the Fortune 500, if I had to guess. Last year, we did $1.3 billion in revenue. And this year, we're going to do 2.5, push the team. They told me something slower than that, lower than that, but I believe. <laughs> for context, like in terms of freight volume shipped, we will ship this year about 400,000 what are called TEUs, 20-foot equivalent units, which is a half of a 40-foot container. So 200,000 40-foot containers, which you can think of as basically a truckload, 200,000 of them per year. We will see where it shakes out at the end of the year, like what the rankings are, but I think we're number one on the Trans-Pacific. We're top three for sure. And we'll see. I haven't seen what competitor numbers are yet, but I think we're going to be number one for most freight shipped from Asia to the United States this year, uh, which is the world's largest trade lane. And how many employees do you have? How many offices around the globe? I've seen you know so much growth in, in the recent years. Uh, we've got about 2,200 employees uh, in 22 offices. Wow. And that counts a few. I think we have five warehouses now, six one opening soon. And that counts those as well. When we come back, I'll talk with Ryan about the bizarre effects of the pandemic on global trade and how his business and others may be forever changed. But first, a quick break. So let's talk about this past year. I mean, logistics and global goods transit have just never been so top of mind for a generation, more than a generation, right? Um, this pandemic has just, it's brought to the headlines so many supply chain crunches, so many, you know, ships stuck in canals. You mentioned already that all the ships are just plain full right now. Can you give me your analysis of what has happened over the past year, year and a half um, in terms of global, especially ship transit? Yeah, you know, it's been uh, probably a year that will never be, I hope will never be repeated the last 18 months or last, uh, yeah, really since the pandemic started, it's just been utter chaos. It's the only way to describe it. At Flexport, we have about 500 employees in Asia, maybe 300 in mainland China. And so we were like really early on exposed almost quite literally to the pandemic. We had employees who were in Wuhan at the time. We had, uh, we were doing shipping all over China. And January is when we first realized that, hey, this is a pretty big deal, this pandemic. And we run a, we have a group called Flexport.org that's our humanitarian aid division. We ship for all sorts of relief projects, refugee camps, disaster relief, things like this. Um, and so we activated Flexport.org back in January before the pandemic, before any cases of coronavirus had hit the US. We were actually shipping masks to Wuhan to the front line to healthcare, non nonprofits working in healthcare on, in Wuhan. Sort of embarrassingly, we shipped like 350,000 masks from the United States to Wuhan. So then when we were out of masks in the US, we're like, that was our fault on some level. <laughs> we're trying to help, right? And then, so that was in January. February, we realized, hey, this is a pretty big deal. It started to hit in the US. March is when we all closed our, we closed our offices. I think we closed like two weeks before San Francisco gave the order. That's our main, uh, our original head office where I'm based is in San Francisco. We, so this, the mayor closed out. We were already working remotely at that time. What we saw from a shipping perspective was like, everybody freaked out. Everybody looked at, we were staring in the abyss because every economist in the world predicted that global trade would collapse, orders, people wouldn't have any money, they'd be a jobless, they wouldn't be buying any things. So everybody canceled all their purchase orders to their factories. The factories were closed for about six weeks from, I want to say like mid-February till the end of March last year and in 2020. Uh, so you had this six-week period with no orders and no shipping at all. That creates a backlog, right? Because all that's all the orders that have been placed before that need to start shipping. 
the ocean carriers, the people that own the ships, they, like everybody else, predicted that demand would collapse and they pulled a, a huge number of ships off of these strings, off of the sailings and just put them, like kind of mothballed them. So you had this diminishing supply. That backlog of freight needed to go find a ship and there were not enough ships for it. And that has been the story ever since, is that in fact, consumer demand has spiked, has gone crazy because people can't go to restaurants, can't go to bars or travel, and they're getting lots of money from the government. There's been so much stimulus. So you got to buy something. Where are you going to get that dopamine? You're going to go on Amazon or some direct-to-consumer site and buy some stuff. And actually, purchases of goods are through the roof. We have imports are up 20%. Nobody predicted this. Supply was diminished. We have been working as a society through this backlog for now almost a year, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. All the carriers are just sold out. The price of shipping a container from China to the United States, I've seen rates as high as $20,000, like 15,000 is the new normal, at least for the next few months, if you want to get a container shipped. And that's if you can get a container. For context, last pre-pandemic, the rates were like $1,400. Wow. It's 10X. I mean, this is like cryptocurrency style volatility. Um, it's a, it's kind of a nightmare. I mean, it's like we're trying to help our customers, but we're sold out. What do you do? It's not good for us. We sit with our customers. We want to talk about technology. We want to talk about uh, how our visibility products can help them know when their stuff is going to arrive, how we can help them be more efficient with their team, collaborate with all their their network of suppliers and vendors around the world and distribution sites. But instead, we're just stuck talking like a regular freight company, like how can I get a container onto a ship? So it's definitely not a not a happy situation in the, in our industry right now. Do you? I mean, do you have any prediction? Or I know this is sort of unprecedented, so it's hard to to predict. But will it be back to normal in or whatever the a new normal might be if it settles down? You know, in, in a year or in uh, what kind of time frame are you looking at? I'd love for someone to find this for me. Uh, find me one economist out there who predicted that as a result of the pandemic goods purchases would go up. Like, I can't find one who took that stance, right? And you're like, wait a minute, the whole, not one person foresaw this. And in hindsight, it's all very easy to explain, you know, oh, we couldn't shop or we couldn't go to restaurants, so we bought stuff. We shopped instead. Yeah, so we just bought couches. That makes sense in <laughs> Everyone's hindsight. just bought a couch. Yeah, you got it. And you're stuck <laughs> at your house. You want your house to be nice. Um, so it, it's- But Ryan, where's than- my rug? I mean, like- <laughs> Nobody knows where their stuff Nobody is, knows. right? Um, unless they use Flexboard, they can tell you exactly where it is, which container it's on, it's going to run. The answer is, I think we're going to get out of this when people start re- restoring their their habits to normal. And you're seeing that as people as vaccines take hold and everyone's pretty hungry to go to a concert or, or a bar or hang out with their friends, go to some events and stuff, but sports games. Once that takes hold, it'll start working its way through the system. And then it'll be a few more months after that before things sort of normalize. I do worry that you're going to have this catastrophic back. They call this in supply chains, they call it the bullwhip effect, like where you just have these whiplash effects. Right now, all the brands are super optimistic. They're selling out. They're ordering as much as they can, placing as many purchase orders as they can to their factories, try to get goods in because they're selling out. They might quickly find out they ordered too much stuff and then have to cancel all these orders or not make future orders and so that's the bullwhip effect is like right now you have this surge of demand and then it might go really dramatically become quite volatile. And that's that's my fear. And every single customer I talk to is so optimistic that they're going to keep growing and growing and growing in perpetuity. 
And I worry that that can't be true for all of them at once. I think that's a really smart prediction. And that's something for us to all keep our eyes on. Um, when the Ever Given made headlines this year, I started thinking like, how many of these micro events or, or, I mean, that was obviously a very big event that delayed global shipping for so many companies, for so many different people, but you know, the ship was only stuck for what, like a week. Um, how many of those things happen every week or month that the customer or, or, you know, the headlines of the newspaper don't see that you see? Well, what was special about the Ever Given was that it wasn't just one ship. It blocked all the ships before and after yeah. it, um, and all the containers that are on those ships and those, sure. and we have this like cycle that needs to happen with these containers that those are you now still we have shortages of containers and we already had a shortage before the ever given and that just really compounded it and it breaks the sailing schedule etc so there's a lot of incidents with ships but it usually is isolated to the one ship rather than a systemic problem like that was and and there's more than ever last year not because there's more rogue waves or something but because uh the ships are so full that you had at least three incidents that i can recall where like hundreds or even a thousand, more than a thousand containers fell off a ship. That's pretty rare, but when the ships are so full, then it's more likely to happen because yeah, there's just a lot of stress. The physics, the forces of these things is, is pretty insane. And with, with the rates where they are, the ocean carriers naturally want to stuff the ship as full as they can possibly make it. I know we had three incidents. One, we lost Flexport alone, lost a hundred containers overboard on one of these ships. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So it's been a rough year for us talking to customers and explaining like, well, not much I can do about that. What's the lasting effect of that? Um, you know, either a hundred containers falling off a ship or, or a ship getting stuck in a canal and delaying everything. I mean, when containers get lost, what happens? I mean, is it like massive lawsuits? Containers going overboard, not uh, usually there's insurance on these things mm-hmm. and the insurance company will cover you and there's not a lot to do from a lawsuit perspective. It's the maritime law is pretty established. Like it's older than the U.S. Constitution, so um, you're not going to have a huge amount of success in the court. There's so much precedent that the limits limits of liability for the carrier are pretty well established, and you pay for insurance for that reason to cover you. The Ever Given is a more interesting case because there were so many other second order effects of ships that were delayed. By the way, we have 43 containers on the Ever Given and they're still on the Ever Given. Can't get them off till, until that's all gets shaken out and pay, you know, the, all the different parties settle and, and it might take years. You have this thing, it's called general average. It's an ancient maritime principle, which is basically if some containers go overboard, then the cost of those containers is shared by all the shippers. And this is pre, it predates containers. This is ancient maritime law. It was to encourage sailors not to think about which cargo to throw overboard. Just sail, just save the ship, please. And we'll figure it out later and everybody will make each other whole. So that's an ancient principle. Well, the Evergreen declared, the owners of the Evergreen or the operators declared general average. So that means everybody's going to share equally in the pain which could be quite significant. The Suez Authority, the government of Egypt wants, I think they've, their original demand was a couple billion. They're down to 600 million that they're requesting. But then there's a lot of other people who are going to have, who may have claims. If your ship was stuck behind that ship, you could make a case in court that, hey, you, you're, you owe us money for, I don't know how it's going to shake out. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it's not many founders I talked to, I think probably none who get to say that their daily lives involve ancient maritime law. Oh yeah, exactly. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's like a fascinating place. As long, you know, it, it was more fun when we like all of our customers love us and we're it's say nothing but good things about how we've helped them lately. It's been like, well, we're, 
we're in a tough position. We can't help people as much as we normally can. And it's sad because normally it's just a wonderful vantage point to learn about the world. It's like, how does all this stuff fit together? How do the, we're kind of the backstage pass to the global economy. What, where does, who's shipping what? How are the businesses working? Where is the stuff made? Where is it sold? It's a fascinating industry. Um, but yeah, tough times lately. So um, let, let's back up. I mean, obviously this year has been uniquely challenging. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is, is you were in the top 10 of the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the US in 2018. So you had had this three-year period of just tremendous growth. I want to talk to you about what were some of the ways you set up from the beginning, you set up Flexport to have that growth, to be able to scale really quickly. How did that work in the first three, four years? One of the things that allowed Flexport to grow really fast was that I didn't know how to solve the problem. I had a vision for what the customer experience should look like, but like how to actually create that, how to get access to capacity on ships, how to get all of the world's trucking companies to come and provide us, how to clear customs in and out of every country. Like these were problems I didn't know. I only knew what the customer experience, I, I knew what the end state was. I think that if I had known all of those things, we would have gone much faster in the very early days. A little known fact about Flexport is that we didn't generate our first dollar of revenue until year five. I was the only employee for the first four years. It's not really a business. It was me learning and trying to understand stuff. And I think had I known as much as I know now, had I worked in freight industry before and not just been a customer of it, we would have gone much faster in the beginning. But then we would have hit the limits of like, what am I able to tell people to do? And like, do I understand the problem enough? Can I give everybody orders to do the thing? Like giving orders is great. You can go pretty fast, but now you're dependent on one person knowing what to do and, and have, making the right decisions. We went slower in the beginning, but then because I didn't know all the things, instead we created this culture where it was like, look, let's figure it out. Let's empower people, let them make decisions. It was a very bottoms up kind of culture. And that really let us scale really fast. And you don't need... In this industry, you don't really need a boss telling you what to do. The customer is going to tell you what to do. Just solve their problem and build what they need. We have thousands of bosses. They don't need me to tell people what to do. I'm very proud of that sort of bottoms up culture that we created where people were just empowered. Hey, make the decision, move fast, like take some risk build the thing and learn from your experience. It can be a hurdle or it can be something that superpowers growth, but that ability to have employees who figure it out, learn on the job, grow into their jobs. The hurdle that some businesses face is that those employees also don't have that kind of management experience. Once they get to that next level, there's, there's another kind of level of growth that needs to happen. Did you find people that were willing to grow, grow, grow and, and learn and and become seasoned business people at the same time? Or did you hit a hurdle there? Uh, all of the above. We have a lot of people who've grown. I'm really proud of the Flexboarders who are still with us, huge numbers of them from the early days and have really grown. But it is almost impossible for... And I think this is a mature thing to do is, is kind of like when you're interviewing someone, draw the graph of like, here's the company growth that we want to do. And like, here's likely what's possible for a human to grow. And it's unlikely to be at the same slope. Like you probably can't grow your own capabilities 100% in one year. Very few people can do that. And just having that candid conversation up front of like what is actually possible for you. And it is very likely that the role will outgrow you. I wish we'd been more upfront about that. Like something we got more mature over time and recognize that and have that conversation up front. So it doesn't have to be this brutal 
experience of like, oh, they hired a new boss for me, or I have less responsibility than I used to. Because the reality is you have more responsibility, just that the overall pie grew so much. So that, that's definitely a challenge. I'd, I'd say the other one is really recognizing the limits of like that bottoms up culture, that it's awesome. You move fast, but actually at a certain point, not having some standardization and some top-down directive, you don't all move in the same direction. Bureaucracy can come from two different ways. It appears in two different forms, and we're all much more used to the standard form of bureaucracy, which is like large corporation with so many processes and rules and policies that like no one can get anything done. That's a very familiar form of bureaucracy. And I think the one that comes to mind in your mental image when you think of the word bureaucracy, but there's another form in startups is quite common, which is there's no standards, there's no processes and no policies and anything can, anyone can do anything, but we're not aligned and we're rowing against each other. And, and no one actually knows how to get something done. Who can make a decision? Who has decision rights? Five different people think they're the closest to that problem and they've been empowered to act quickly, but they're now five different people acting separately instead of together. And that's a that's a, a just as common, in fact, I would say more common in startups form of bureaucracy. And this is your challenge is like as a leader of a company, your your company's changing as every time you grow, every single day it's a little bit different than it was. And your level of standards and processes has to evolve with that. And you're kind of like, as the founder trying to defend your culture, need to navigate that so that you're the right amount of process at the right time too much. And you become like this very orderly stagnant place with no innovation, uh, too much process, too little process. And you're like this disorderly chaotic place with no innovation. So it's like right on that line between order and chaos is where you're trying to hold things. Um, and, but that line is constantly moving as you grow. Yeah, that's fascinating. How did you how did you fi- try to find that line or how did you navigate um, it? Um it's kind of like when my mom plays Mario Kart. She goes way off the one side of the road and then way off the other <laughs> side and I still like could get a little better over time, but Did you have any mentors to turn to? Um do you have any tips for others to, you know, other leaders to try to find that line? One of the cool things about the technology industry in particular is that there's this real sense of paying it forward and helping each other that I don't no, I mean, I haven't spent enough time in all the world's industries to see, but I think most industries are sort of like, one, they're highly competitive and they want to keep their secrets to themselves because that's how they make money. Technology companies actually, for the most part, don't compete with one another. You know, like LinkedIn and Flexport, we have no sense. There's not a world where we're going to compete with each other. And so LinkedIn executives there have been super helpful to me teaching me, like, I think they're really good at cultures and bringing a culture that drives values and really a well-run, to my view, at least at this stage, a well-run company, even even post-Microsoft acquisition. There's so many examples of companies like this. And if you reach out to someone and you ask a a question about culture, I have found, like, I get the meeting, the CEO, C-levels will take a meeting and help me and answer those questions. Whereas if I reach out about a question of like, hey, how do you build lists for your sales teams? They'll just introduce me to someone like four levels down. But if it's about culture, it's about how we do things around here. How do you drive values into and drive your vision? And the C-levels take action, the, the personally interest, and they're kind of obsessed with it. And that was my early on signal that this matters is the fact that that's what those people want to talk about and they're obsessed with means like, oh, it must be a really important aspect of it. And we benefit. I remind this to my teams. It's like, find someone who's doing your role at a company you admire. 
or maybe they're a level ahead of you and reach out to them and ask them a question about management, about team building, about leadership. They'll take the meeting and you'll build a relationship and they'll help you uh, and coach you. So we, we need to make sure we're taking the best ideas from across the world. And technology companies are uniquely good at this. That's so neat. And I feel like the culture stuff, it's not just something to relate to other people on. It's it's so human, you know, because it is it is taking other humans that you're working with, working for, or, or you know, building your company around into account. It's sort of inherently the most important thing. Your company is going to be different at different stages. And like you have to be good at understanding that so you can help people change or adapt. Because if you just want to be an early stage employee hanging on, and we can all get nostalgic about the early days of Flexport, but like you remember all the good stuff, but you don't remember like our product wasn't very good compared to where it is now. Like the software was pretty rudimentary. We didn't have good rates. We didn't have good carriers on board on the platform. Today, we have one third of all the trucks that do port pickups natively in our software, we can assign loads to them before we used to have to call. Like a lot of stuff were much worse. You owe it to these people to help them be like, look, here's what's changing. Here's how it's, we expect it to change with size. And it's hard to do because as an entrepreneur, you really don't know what it's going to be like when you get bigger. You're learning on the job. And my job is to learn faster than everyone else. What was the most challenging moment for you or period of time in, you know, since 2014? It might be right now with the current situation. We've always, customers have been ecstatic about Flexport and we're really struggling at the moment to like keep customers happy and get them access to space and, and make their business models work. Like if suddenly the freight goes to $15,000 a container, there's a lot of businesses that don't have that much margin on a container and can't stay in business or can't pass it through. So probably right now, uh, I'm unsure how to resolve it though. So I don't know if there's any lessons in that uh, yet. There will be. Um, I would say another one is probably like three years ago, we were just moving really too slow on the technology front. And I realized I needed to make a change in our leadership for our tech org. And I hadn't yet at that time built up enough of a bench. Like today, we have Slack capacity. We have people that almost any leader in the company, if they are needing, if they're failing or they're struggling, we can back them up and give them support and help them. Or we can have someone take over for them if they, if it, if it's decided that it's not the right fit and it's not going to work out. At that time, we didn't have that. And so it was a pretty jarring move. And I needed to bring in folks that had more experience in logistics. We had really smart technologists, but not enough domain experience. And it really matters. The domain experience matters in tech. And I didn't appreciate that. I thought like, oh, fresh eyes from technology will reinvent this industry. But actually, there's a lot of things about this industry where you want, where the data modeling is crucial to get it right. Uh, modeling your network, modeling consolidations, so multiple shipments going inside a single shipment. There's like a lot of really hard data problems that you don't want to try solving from scratch. And we had to go out took me better part of a year to find new CTO, bring in more leadership, bring in, we're still bring, trying to bring in more senior engineering experience and data modeling experience in logistics because it is really a subclass of its own. It takes years for our 
team to learn it all. We have awesome people at Flexport, but we also need folks who have seen the problem before because these smart people at a whiteboard won't solve all these problems from scratch. You need to like understand the real world implications of what you're doing. Right. That's so fascinating because you're you're in two different industries sort of at once. And there's not a, I imagine not a ton of humans on the planet have expertise in both, right? Hiring a lot from Amazon is a place that has solved this. There's a handful of companies that made progress, at least in this area and understand the problem domain, but um, but not that many, you know, so we do definitely have to grow people and train them and stuff, but we, we'd still need more experts out of the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get back to talking about this pandemic year. And this is something that you mentioned is your company's tremendous effort to give back, um, which really started before the COVID-19 pandemic was a pandemic. You know, you started um, raising money for the Frontline Responders Fund and Flexport.org. Was Flexport.org around before the um, the COVID-19 crisis hit? And how did you fund it? How did you get people into it? And uh, I know you've raised some $8 million or more dollars now um, to, to deliver 62 million pieces of PPE. That's the latest stat I have, at least. It's probably more, more by now. But tell me a little bit about that effort, where it began, and how did how you kind of sink resources into it? Yeah. So actually, Flexport.org uh, started right around the same time as Flexport, a um, okay. long time ago. There was a New York Times like front page photograph that, uh, of a child in the Syrian war who was like covered in blood that like really struck me and, and many other people. And I, I remember looking at that and being like, wait, there's like refugee camps in Syria that need, or, or in Jordan or Turkey that need stuff. They must need products. They, they need things. I don't know what they need, but let's, let's find out. And we were able to get in touch and find out, you know, they wanted mattresses, socks, like underwear, some basics. And we had customers that made those products and wanted to donate them. And so I reached out we have a broad network. We've shipped to 109 countries. And we even had an agent, a partner in Syria that we could ship to Syria and in Aleppo, which is where a lot of the conflict was happening. And I just got the guy's email address who runs that company. And I emailed, I was like, hey, we want to ship a container of goods to a, you know this refugee camp near Aleppo. And he was like, sure, what's the address? And it was like, blew my mind. Cause I'm like, he's not telling me like, hey, we're in a war zone. Like maybe now is not a good time. He just asked what's the destination address. And we ended up not shipping to Syria directly because didn't know what's going on in the, con- in the midst of the conflict zone. We, shipped, we started shipping to refugee camps in Jordan and in Turkey. Um, but that was the genesis of flexport.org was like, hey, we got customers that make these products that are willing to donate them. People need them. And we'll just, we're good at shipping stuff. That's what we do. Wow, that's amazing. And so that was the genesis. What we what we learned since 60% of all the goods that are shipped for humanitarian relief projects go unused. It's the wrong product, shipped to the wrong place or at the wrong time. One of those three things goes wrong. And you've seen those famous photographs from like Puerto Rico where there's like warehouses or airport runways full of bottled water. Like didn't know, no one was on the receiving end. Like lots of good intentions, shipping stuff places, but like someone's got to be on the other end. So what Flexport.org does is, is turn that model around. We work with like top NGOs, top government agencies or NGOs, and we turn it and they say, what do you need? They turn it around and say, hey, you tell us what you need. And then we'll turn to our community of brands. We've got 6,000 companies actively shipping every single week on the Flexport platform. And we'll find someone who makes that product and we'll ask, we'll give them the opportunity. Hey, if you donate this, we'll pay for the shipping to deliver it. That's the way Flexport.org works. And we just do it. We just fund it from our own budget. Not very much. And we're not profitable. So we can't do as much yet. We will be profitable soon, but 
we can't do as much as we would like there. So when the COVID pandemic hit, that was already in place. And in fact, we had already started a non uh, a fund as we already had it set up. We had never raised money into the fund, but it existed because it's actually should be the world's best form of philanthropy or one of the best forms of philanthropy, because as a philanthropist, you love to just make it's the easy button. Like, hey, look, there's a shipment of goods that have been donated that are going to this cause and you're just paying for the logistics. And for example, to ship a container outbound from the US, it's only like 500 bucks to ship a container to Asia. A little bit more once you go into like a disaster site or something like that, but it's it's not that much. And the container of goods will be like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of merchandise that you can sort of, you're getting a lot of leverage in your philanthropy. Um, so that fund already existed. So when COVID hit, we, we realized there's tons of masks out there. There's hospitals that are desperate. These hospitals never actually had to import anything before. They usually just bought directly from middlemen um, who did all the importing. When the middlemen were out of stock, the hospitals had sourced masks, needed help getting them in. And so we onboarded them. We onboarded UCSF, the whole UC system, Kaiser, we, like dozens of hospital networks around the US, um, NHS in, in the UK, Holland, pretty much all over the world, we were onboarding people, teaching them how to import. And then we raised this fund to help them pay for the logistics and help get goods delivered. It was only to pay for nonprofit, nonprofit hospitals and others that are like going directly to the front lines. So far, we just raised another 2 million bucks or so for India shipping. We're shipping a lot right now to India. We shipped a couple thousand oxygen concentrators a week right now going to India, try to get um, help over there, provide some relief. But I'm really proud of it. I think it's just the early days. Like I really would love to see a world where flexport.org had this standing fund. And I personally going to donate a lot to it and have uh, a little bit already, but as my wealth grows, going to donate a lot there and the company will, and I'm hoping to find other philanthropists who will come in and realize like what a great process this is for for matching. It's almost a bat signal. Hey, what do you need? We'll get it there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could see that applying to a lot of other um, needs and industries as well. You also did something uh, interesting this year um, and unexpected. Uh, you wrote a children's book. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, with this ever given situation, I thought it was the, um, you know, I, I'm really inspired by optimists. And I thought that guy who had the digger the excavator going to try to un excavate that ship with a little tiny excavator. He really inspired me. Everyone's making fun of him. <laughs> I mean, it was a very iconic image, right? And I was like, why are we making fun of this guy? He's like doing his best. Like, what would you do if you had an excavator? Hopefully you would do the same thing. And so I made that, uh, I wrote a children's book about that, the big ship and the little digger and all the proceeds are going to COVID um, relief in India for flexport.org. It's the power of naive optimism to believe you can solve a problem even when no one else, when it's totally naive to think that you could do such a thing. It tells the story of the ship leaving from China and all the stuff that's on it. Teaches kids a little bit about global logistics, where's all this stuff come from that you love. And then shows how like, actually, although the little digger was too small to solve the problem, his uh, enthusiasm and good optimism attracted others. Tugboats came and then the pump came to pump the water and together as a team, they were able to uh, free the ship. So I'll give you a tip. Writing a children's book, as long as you don't make it rhyme, doesn't take that long. It's illus illustrating the children's book. Uh, but there are lots of illustrators out there. We're very lucky. Uh, we have a, an awesome illustrator who works at Flexport named Yanni, who does on our design team. Uh, and he was pumped to work with me on it. So he did all the illustrations. He should get all the credit uh, because he did 
a thousand times more work to illustrate a book than to write it. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, great. Um, it's, it's so cool that you were able to do that. Um, so what's the biggest challenge you have facing that you're facing going forward? Well, right. Yeah. Again, right now it's how do we get enough capacity on the world ships? They're all full. Um, and yeah, yeah. That's an annoying challenge because it should be run of the mill. No problem that, you know, it always has been throughout. Uh, there's not been a time when all the ships are full that I'm aware of. And it takes years to, to cr- build a new ship and bring it on board. So I would like the challenge to go back to being delivering software, you know, the promise of software to revolutionize logistics. And that is still the challenge that we're staying focused on is what can you do? But short term, we've got to solve these customer problems and get them access to capacity. We've been doing innovative things, partnering with carriers, helping carriers to get the right capacity in the right place, partnering to make sure that Flexport has access to as much of that capacity as possible. But uh, yeah, really difficult moment in global logistics. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for, for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. After speaking with Ryan, what I'm left thinking about, aside from the wild stories of detained cargo containers and ancient maritime law, is that he was able to build a billion-dollar company in this massive, complex, and very insular industry, shipping logistics. And now he's operating in that industry that's in upheaval, facing massive changes due to the pandemic. And he can't even predict an end of it. He's still in the midst of change. He still has containers he's managing that are stuck in limbo on the Ever Given. But he can already reflect on some of the ways he's grown as a leader and the lessons his company has learned in scaling over the years. I particularly liked his thoughts that when a company is growing super fast, there's a need to grow faster than any one individual can learn and grow. And there's a need for balancing the scrappy, do-it-all-yourself startup mentality with a certain orderliness. And if you don't, you, of course, will avoid the big company type of bureaucracy, but you could subject yourself to a different, worse kind of chaos bureaucracy that leaves too many people thinking they are the authority or the closest thing to the decision. Growing fast is, on some level, about balancing order and disorder. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you liked what you heard, we have a really small favor to ask. Please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening so you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Or you can let me know personally on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who is currently composing a sea shanty about the Suez Canal, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. 